little thought for you as we begin 2 Peter today. You know, the more I think about this, and I, I just throw this out because if you, if you continue on through the time and you read 2 Peter, and especially if you were in the class last quarter with 1 Peter, I think you'll see something that, that I think is a valid analogy. So let me say it this way. When you think about 2 Peter, 2 Peter is to Peter a lot like 2 Timothy is to Paul. Now just think about that for a few moments, because what was 2 Timothy to Paul? Well, of course he had written 1 Timothy to Timothy, but some few years have gone by now, if we understand the chronology of Paul's life correctly. Uh, Paul has been rearrested. He's in Rome. He's facing uh, martyrdom there. Similar situation with Peter. Some years have gone by since he wrote 1 Peter. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he wrote to Timothy, so same audience, if we can put it that way. When, Paul wrote, or when Peter wrote 2 Peter, he wrote to the same group as best we can understand things. But a few years have passed by, and because of that now, different issues, different burdens. And so we're finding some interesting things in this book, and what I want to do today is to start with just some brief matters of introduction like we did with 1 Peter. And, you know, unfortunately, there's not enough time to do some of this justice. In fact, if you compare what I have here for you on the PowerPoint slide with what I said under Roman numeral 1 on the handout paper, you'll find that I actually developed this point and added some material. So that's one advantage of a handout. See, I can just skip over what I don't have time for, and you can follow up on it if you would like to. But... When we delve into, so here are just some very standard issues of, of, of a, general, a gen, general introduction presented for a book. Who wrote the book? Well, for conservatives, it's not really up for grabs because the author tells us, and we find that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. By the way, we'll read our text in a few moments when we actually get to today's lesson. But it says here in verse number 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, it is true. If you do a lot of New Testament studies, you would bump into this fact, so I'll make a passing reference to it and do no more because from a conservative standpoint, doing more really isn't necessary. But the authorship of 2 Peter, particularly among more liberal uh, audiences, is um, a matter over the years that has received a fair amount of attention and debate. Really, the arguments and concerns raised against what you might call Petrine authorship of 2 Peter don't really hold up. And as I said, for a conservative, it's not even something that we really worry about simply because we believe the Word of God is inspired and the author tells us who he is. And matters of style difference between 2 Peter and 1 Peter and these types of things have ready explanations and don't demand that you come to the conclusion, well, it can't be Peter because when you look at the vocabulary, when you look at the way he expresses his thoughts and some of those kinds of things, it just doesn't seem like to be the same person. Well, that, that's, a, that's a, a fool's errand, I think. What I do think is interesting, though, is if you were to take a moment to compare 1 Peter chapter 1 to verse 1, where he, he, he mentions Peter as himself as the author, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, because you'll find two elements that are included here that were not included in the introduction to 1 Peter. Number one, he refers to himself as Simon Peter, or as you see in the ESV there, Simeon Peter. Simeon, don't let that throw you. That's just the Old Testament spelling of the same name. So again, not anything for us to be concerned about. 
There's some differences in how it's spelled in the manuscript. Some have Simeon, some have Simon. There's no doubt as to what, what is meant by it. But Simon, if you think about Simon, um, you think of some remarkable times, and they kind of add up to making a point. When Jesus used that name for Peter, there were some remarkable occasions. Think about this. You remember, in fact, I think maybe this was in the one just last week, maybe the week before if I am wrong about last week, but he said to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon. But this is significant because, remember, it was Jesus who gave Peter the name Cephas, which is the Aramaic for Petros or Peter, rock. So since Jesus gave him that name, it's rather interesting that on some occasions, that Luke 22 is an example, it's almost like, Okay, John 21 is another one where um, he talks to him after that failure, that great failure in his life. And he says, Simon, Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Remember? And uses the Simon. And it's almost like Peter chooses to use that here because he remembers it from the past. Obviously, you're going to remember it. It's your name. But... He remembers the occasions, perhaps, when Jesus used this to remind him, you know, before you were Cephas, you were Simon. Now think about that for a moment, because there's a point to be made there. Then he adds the word servant. Neither of these two things are found in the uh, verse, first verse of 1 Peter there. Both are added here. And I'm just kind of wondering, does this, maybe not something you can prove, maybe you want to build a, a huge case out of this, but... To me, it makes a very practical and interesting thought. Despite the fact that he's at the end, which means he's at the pinnacle of his apostolic career, he commands the greatest authority, so to speak, not only in terms of the calling of God on his life, but in terms of the experience and years that have gone by. He's in this position of commanding the greatest authority, and yet he uses terms to describe himself that downplay that and that emphasize more of a humble type approach to things. Not that there aren't times. Paul did this. There were times when he got into a situation where he needed to defend his apostolic position and authority. He didn't hesitate to do that. But on the other hand, if you look at Paul, and I mentioned this aspect of deepening humility. 1 Corinthians, because I think there's an analogy here, and I think it should hold up really in all of our lives. We should, as we grow in grace, which is exactly what Peter tells us he wants us to do right towards the end of the book, but grow in grace, and we actually see the thought of growing here in chapter 1 as well. But if we're going to grow in grace, you know something, folks? An indispensable byproduct of that is, is that we will grow in humility, and if we're not growing in humility, it doesn't mean you have a full and total victory over it. But if we aren't growing in humility, we're really not growing in grace. And it's kind of interesting, that's how we ended our study of 1 Peter in chapter 5, by talking about humility and service, and humility and relationships, and all of this kind of thing. Peter is talking about that. It was in that very chapter that he chose to refer to himself when he spoke to the elders as a fellow elder. He didn't trumpet a higher title for himself. He chose to refer to himself as a fellow elder. Well, in these verses that you see here on Paul, and I'm, I'm taking more time on this, but it interests me, and I, you know, it, I hope it will interest you. Paul starts, there's a threefold progression of this, and you have in the listing of this a chronological progression with 1 Corinthians being written earlier, then Ephesians, then 1 Timothy. 
In that verse in 1 Corinthians, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. All right, now think about this progression, the least of the apostles. Later, when he writes Ephesians, he refers to himself in that verse as the least of the saints. Do you see how this is progressing? In 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, which is the last of that trio, he refers to himself as the chiefest of sinners. So do you see this all going all the way from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints and then to the chiefest of sinners would tend to me to really be suggestive. I'm going to throw you out one more food for thought. So if you, if you go away from today and say, I didn't get anything else devotional, I hope you get this. This is a total polar opposite of what tends to be the way the natural man operates. And the reason I say that is because think of what John says, for all that is in the world, 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, what's the last one? Pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And it has been pointed out, I think, with some degree of accuracy that those Three statements there can almost be applied to three phases of life. That in, not that you dismiss any one of those things from any stage of life, but that in the earlier stages of life, it seems we have our greatest battle with the lust of the flesh. And you get into middle, middle life or, or into a full-blown adulthood, and it's like the lust of the eyes. There's all these things that you want. A house, you know, a car, this or that, and none of those things wrong, but... And then you get to the end and the pride of life. Looking back now in the latter stages of life and looking back at your life with this great pride in your accomplishments. And if you're growing in grace, you know, it works the other way. You start out thinking well of yourself, and then the more you grow in grace, the more you sort of realize, hmm, <laughs> you know, I'm just a rotten sinner. That's all. Saved by grace. And it's a wonder that God would would see fit to save me, and it's a wonder that God would see fit to use me. So this is interesting. Well, that's too much on that, but you could have a whole sermon on it. The recipients, presumably the same as those in 1 Peter, because you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, again, you wouldn't have to necessarily say this is airtight, but why should we come to a different conclusion? There's no solid reason we should. When he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, well, where there's a, a loophole in this is we don't know how many letters he wrote and to whom. So you could potentially make the argument that this doesn't prove it, but I think it's the natural assumption. So we're going to handle it this way. Peter wrote the book. He wrote it to the same group. Those, I think I even have them here for you again. Remember, the strangers scattered throughout the, the provinces of Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Galatia. All, you see them here, Bithynia up at the top in the northwest and Cappadocia over in the north to the east side of things, Galatia in the middle, Asia, and where's Bithynia? Oh, saw Bithynia. So, so those are the places that, that we believe he was writing to those congregations and he'd had ministry with those people. Date and place of writing, well, we're at the end, just as Paul is at the end, and we do have, look at point B, we do have a, a traditional, we have a lot of knowledge of this, okay? This is not just a lot of stuff that's been conjured up but that Peter was martyred in Rome in either the year 67 or early 68. So if he's writing this letter and he says, 
um, just as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.6, the time of my departure is at hand. It's a different Greek word, but it's the same English word that's used to translate it. Paul is, or Peter is saying the same thing here when he says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. This is chapter 1, verse 14. As our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, same English word, it's a different word in the original, but nevertheless the same thought. They both expect that soon they'll be leaving this world and want to prepare, in Paul's case, Timothy, or in Peter's case, these uh, believers that he was familiar with and had ministry with. The occasion and theme, well, 1 Peter was written to encourage believers in view of suffering. So you have a little different situation. A um, couple years later, three years or so later, when he's writing this, maybe four at the most, but probably around three, conditions have changed. There's a point to be made there, too. You know, nothing stays the same. And if you don't guard the hen house, the fox will get in. The minute you think that, well, you know, things are just going along real well, better watch out, because the devil doesn't take any days off. And so here, just three short years later, there's been a transition to a new problem, and 2 Peter is written to warn believers about false teachers. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people. It's talking about Israel, this happened with them. You know, I've often said, really, the devil doesn't have any new tricks. He just has different wrapping paper. And so it's the same old stuff repackaged. And so this happened with Israel. It happened in the church. And he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. And this is what this whole epistle, more so than you realize. You you know, you don't encounter that blunt statement until chapter 2, verse 1. But the more you study this and the more you look at what he's saying, even in the first four verses that we're going to look at today, where he starts off with this emphasis on knowledge. I'll get to that in a few moments. It's it's like from the get-go, he knows exactly the problem that he's attempting to write and counteract. So to warn about false teachers and... As I mentioned here, and again, I'm not going to do it now because I already did it on the first one, but there's something you can think about here that it really is a familiar change of Satan's tactics. If he doesn't attack from without, he attacks from within. It's almost like the church does a better job of weathering attacks from without than it does attacks from within. The attacks from without are somewhat obvious. Someone comes along and, and says you can't come to church on Wednesday night. Well, that's a little, that's a little obvious. Someone comes along and says, well, um, you know, we think that it's, you should change what you believe because it's in vogue now that you shouldn't really discriminate and people of the same sex have as much a right to be married as, as people. Well, I don't know about rights, but I do know about what the Bible says. And those things are <clears throat> very blunt, very open, very clear. You can recognize them. No subtlety really to them except... Eh, when you find purported Christian leaders trying to justify this stuff and wrapping it up into subtle biblical-type language and reinterpretation, that maybe becomes a problem. But you find this same thing going on. Attacks from within, attacks from without, and it happened in the early church. The first attacks that we find against the church in early Acts were ones from without, persecution, just like 1 Peter. 
But then all of a sudden you get to chapter 5 and what do you see? Ananias and Sapphira. That's an internal problem. Then you get to chapter 6, verse 1, and what else do you have? You've got the, the Hellenistic Jews and the hardline Jews, the internal dissension, problems with feeling like one group had been overlooked in the daily ministration and they weren't being looked after with the same degree of care as the, they should have been. So what we're going to do here is to use the theme of sufficiency in faith. We won't even get out of the box today. We'll see the word faith come up. question is, how do we take the word faith? How do, do I mean the word faith? And you know what? There's enough flexibility for us to take in both things that we need to talk about because faith can be, as I mentioned before, in the subjective sense, our belief. Or you can use it with the article that tends to bring out the significance of the objective sense, the faith. What, what is it that we believe? What's the revealed body of Christian truth? Seeing as how there are a great deal of similarities between Jude and 2 Peter, it's interesting to remember that Jude was going to write about the common salvation. Remember that? Then he realized, and the Spirit directed him and said, no, I can't do that because... I have to now exhort you to contend for the faith. So we have both senses really coming out here, and it'll be context that governs which ones we need to look at. So we can always say that God is sufficient, right? And We saw that in 1 Peter. He's sufficient in suffering. Why? Um, we can always say that God is sufficient, but now we've got how does God demonstrate his sufficiency when faith is under attack? And so I'm just proposing this. I'm not saying 1 Peter couldn't be handled differently. I would never say anything like that. But for our study, here's how we're going to look at it. The Bible is our sufficiency in faith, or we could say for faith, because, and here's an overview of the chapters, trying to provide you with a road map. It provides everything that we need to be a flourishing Christian. So you have two thoughts there. You have to get to be a Christian, and then you grow to become a flourishing Christian. It warns against the attack to come, chapter 2. It tells us how to remain steadfast, chapter 3. And I'm going to give you an outline, and you can see I've, I've had some fun with this. You're allowed a little, <laughs> you know, as you go along. So in some places I've used alliteration, and in other cases you can kind of see a little bit of my, a little smile as I've written these phrases. But So faith given. Getting your faith is where we are today. Growing your faith and then grounding your faith. All three topics, chapter one. But faith attacked. Boy, this is when it really comes out. This is where I've had a little fun. Fair warning in verses one through three. The admonition, don't kid yourself. In chapter two, verses four through nine. And ah, rotten apples. I mean, that is quite a description of a rotten apple that you get in those verses. That's about one of the most explicit, maybe the most explicit description we have anywhere in the New Testament. I mean, Jude gets going strongly too, but yeesh, boy, Peter doesn't mince any words about these false teachers. And in chapter 3, now this outline is sort of based on, it's a little easier to pick up if you look at this in the King James Version, but if you look carefully, you'll find these thoughts just a little different way of translating things, but 
Chapter 4 has in it what you might call the beloved bees. You have the use of the word beloved. Is, it's not new. We saw that in 1 Peter. As he reaches out to his audience with four exhortations as the faith is defended. Be mindful, be not ignorant, be diligent, be steadfast. And if Jesus tarries and we don't keel over or something like that, we'll get to these things, God willing, and hopefully it'll be a help and blessing to us. Today's lesson, getting your faith. So again, I mentioned this idea of comparison between the two books. If Peter dealt with an attack from without, which was persecution, Second Peter is dealing with one from within, which is false teachers. But in either case, God is sufficient. I mean, that's a general statement I don't think anybody would argue with. But where we see the application of that in 2 Peter to the problem at hand is that the Bible is sufficient for faith, verses one or 3 and 4, and it provides everything that we need to know. But here's an interesting distinction. Just remember this about the Bible. It wasn't written to tell you everything you want to know. might be that God is saving the best for when we're in glory. I don't know. But he's certainly saving some real pearls. He's certainly saving some real gems. Certainly saving some things that we've puzzled over in this life. Not only about questions of interpretation where the Bible goes so far and just doesn't give you everything maybe you'd like to know. And you have to appeal to systematic theology to tell you, and you have to realize that's, <laughs> you know, you do your best. But when you're going beyond explicit statements of Scripture, eh, there's always a little room there to be concerned or to be careful. So here's a little statement that I put together, and I, you might want to just read this a time or two if you're going to look through the book, because this is kind of meant actually in just a sentence, an extended sentence form, to give you an exposure to the content of the book. Faith is given to us by God. This is what we find out in today's lesson. And as we grow, which is next week's lesson, and become grounded, which is the following week, unless we get an interruption of some kind, we find ourselves equipped when that faith is attacked, which is developed in chapters 2 and 3. Faith attacked, faith defended, I lumped them together here. So we're going to begin today with a question that's been around a long time. You can consider it in the spiritual realm, which is sort of how we'll look at it today, or you can consider it in the intellectual or philosophical realm. It's been bandied about by all of those audiences. And that is Christian faith, our faith. How do we get it? Where does it come from? What's it consist of? And as I said to you before, Right off the, I mean, we don't even get off the bat with the first four verses before when you look at this closely, you'll see that Peter is intentionally channeling his thoughts to begin the subtle defense against these false teachers. Well, we're going to see that Peter makes three statements, at least. This is how I want to present this today. Other times I've preached through this, I've presented it with a little different outline, but this is where we are today. First of all, our faith comes from God. Where do we see this? Right, let's look at our text. We'll read all four verses, and then we'll look at our points. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's your idea of sufficiency right there. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and ESV translates here excellence. King James uses virtue. I like the idea of moral excellence, particularly in the context of 2 Peter, but ESV just uses excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through these promises, you may become partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the, the, uh, the corruption that is in the world because of lust or sinful desire. So if we ask this question, where does our faith come from? Let's compare immediately to something Peter says. So try to remember the backdrop here of these false teachers. Now, if you're asking me to tell you what all, what was their creed, these false teachers, that becomes a little more difficult. You can definitely read the book and see certain things that they said. But in biblical studies, a lot of times this is referred to as the very early stages of Gnosticism and that kind of becomes more full-blown in the second century. And as with a lot of things, you'll use a term like that and realize that it's kind of an umbrella term and has a lot of things under it that don't always prove true of every little iteration of it. Does that make sense? I don't want to do like we heard this week and make a word salad. But you have this umbrella, it's sort of like the term porneia in Greek, which is usually rendered fornication, but that is a, it's an umbrella term. And in a certain context, that's what it means, but it really takes in the whole gamut of all these, these sexual problems and perversions. So it doesn't mean every time you say Gnosticism, you're going to have every little distinct point in the particular situation at hand. It's kind of a, now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis that means, anybody know? Knowledge. Knowledge. Right. So right away you get the suggestion, and you see this in, in 2 Peter, and it's where we're headed to right now. Anytime a group claims to have special knowledge, hmm, well, where'd they get that? And immediately there's the idea of being, well, you have to come to us. And it's going to require ultimately that you sort of be initiated into this inner group of people who have this secret knowledge. I mean, isn't about half spooky. It reminds me of some of the things that go on in the Masonic situations, but um, that's another whole thing. But secret knowledge, special knowledge. And Peter jumps right into countering this whole idea because what you're getting into now is, and this is where Peter just spells it right out, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths or fables, as the King James renders, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Peter says, I'll give you one even better than seeing a vision. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, the scripture. 
So we've already begun to approach the answer to this question. It's a confidence-inspiring thing. It's something that really, I think, helps us to feel better when you get out there and you get berated by people in the world who say, well, you know, my, your ideas are no better than my ideas. Well, where did our ideas come from? They weren't cunningly devised fables. They weren't something that somebody came up with like Joseph Smith and you've got to have the special eyeglasses and he found the plates. You know, like I say, this, this all gets kind of spooky after a while. No, this is like Christianity is all right out in the open. It's just like Paul told Agrippa. This stuff wasn't done in a corner. It's in confidence inspiring to know that our faith comes from God. Now, where do we see that? Well, look, at, look at how Peter chooses his terminology. To those who have obtained, obtained, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, right away from an English standpoint, you could go two ways with that translation obtained. And by the way, that's, that's an excellent translation. But you could take it in the sense to acquire for yourself, which is not the sense that it's meant here. This is an important statement. Obtained, which is a, a term that he chooses wisely and by being led of the Holy Spirit, the whole point behind it is, is that it is designed to exclude human wisdom, and human work because it isn't something that came from man, it's something that came from God. If it came from man, it could be your neat ideas, which would be really valueless, as neat as they might be. But since it comes from God, it doesn't reflect human wisdom, and it doesn't reflect what human beings have done or accomplished. It's something that has come to us from God, by divine choice. Where do we get this from? Because, you know, if you go by, this is kind of a rare word. It's an interesting word. That it would be used in the context of getting something by lots, which is an Old Testament practice that they weren't quite done with, even as when in Acts chapter 1. Remember, they were trying to figure out, okay, Judas is no longer a part of our group. We're supposed to be 12, but we're 11. How are we going to fix this problem? And they chose two. Remember? And they committed that matter to God in prayer, and then what did they do? Lots. The whole idea was, in the Old Testament, when you use lots, now, you could use it, I'm sure, like anything else, you could be superstitious about this. Um, John Wesley was into a little of that, but nevertheless, you could be somewhat superstitious about the lots, or you could be really meaning and spiritual about it and be committing it to God so that when you threw these things or however it was done, God was really the one who determined how it was going to come out. So that it brings to bear the idea of divine choice, which is exactly what we see in those scriptures. They say in verse 17, for he, that is Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted. That's our verb here. He was allotted his share in this ministry. Well, Judas didn't come up with his place in the in the original 12, except by divine choice. Correct? Okay. So you see that idea coming over? Now then look at the end of the chapter. To take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside and to go to his own place, wasn't a good place. And they cast lots for them. So here's our word. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The whole idea is God made the choice between those two men. 
Some other verses in the New Testament from Paul that really go to bring this point to bear, that, that human work and wisdom has nothing to do with it. He says to the Galatians, hey, I want you to know something. The gospel that I'm preaching, it isn't man's. When you think about your faith and the gospel that you heard, it isn't man's. Because men don't come up with the idea that you're a sinner, lost and undone, and you can't work your way to heaven. In fact, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven. Only God's grace. Only God's grace will ever see you through to, the, to, to meet the Lord. That's, that's not human wisdom. Human wisdom is the exact opposite. Paul says, I didn't get it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, 11 and 12. In Ephesians... He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your doing. It is God's gift. The whole kit and caboodle. Faith, all of that, the gift of salvation, it's all from God. So when we come back to our verse here, keeping in mind that idea of, um, I wanted to go back a slide, keeping in mind the idea of we have obtained it from God, um, you'll also notice that later in verse 4, he talks about it being granted, which is again the same concept because there again he uses a little different term than the standard word to give. You almost like the sovereign bestows something on the subject. And God is the sovereign and he does bestow his favor upon us, so he grants it to us. You know, if you think about Esther taking her life in her hands, and going into the outer court, you know, you weren't supposed to do that unless the king sent. And was he going to extend the golden rod? He did extend his favor. She was granted an audience with the king. So this is what Peter is suggesting when he says this. And so let's move to our second point. Our faith is the same as the apostles. And I want you to see this from a practical standpoint because there's more. There's more than just saying that it was obtained by, by, it was God's choice. God granted us his favor. God granted us the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, and of the way of salvation. It came from him. But there's more to our faith, and it's because, well, did you ever think about what I say here in, in the first point? You know, is, do we have a sort of a second-class deal going on because we, uh, we're living roughly 2,000 years after all this happened? And do you ever think, well, you know, if I could have only seen Jesus myself? That was Thomas's way. You know, he said, I, I, I'm not until I touch. He never had to do that, did he? And our faith is not diminished and our faith is not a second-class faith simply because we didn't live in the first generation. When the author to the Hebrews wrote to his audience, he said, and was confirmed unto us by those that heard him. Do you ever realize how many people right off the bat were second-generation Christians? So whether you're second-generation or beyond, who knows what generation we are now. And, you know, there are people out there who will tell you the same thing about that. They'll tell you about the Bible. You know, well, over all these years, you know, it's gotten all tangled up and jumbled up. And how can you really know that what you've got is the real thing? Well, Peter said to his audience, and believe me, they were in Asia Minor. They'd never seen Jesus. 
probably most of them had never seen the temple, never been to Jerusalem and all that kind of thing. He says this, he says, You've obtained, King James says, like precious faith, ESV renders um, here, a faith of equal standing with ours. That's a really interesting translation. And it's a good one. They're translating a word there, you see I gave you in, in italics for it, isotomos, which is a compound word that on the front of it, isos or isos is the idea of equal, and time, the second part of the word is value or honor. So you come up with something that's like precious, that is, it's the same value, has the same standing. Where did ESV kind of extrapolate? Did they extrapolate out? Where did they get this idea of standing? Well, it, this, is, this is good because when you study into the background of this word, you find that it was used in the context of foreigners who became full-fledged citizens and thus now had the same rights and privileges of native-born citizens. So if you move to Florida and you get behind a guy who has a bumper sticker on his car and what is this says native. You see, you know, you've seen those, probably a lot of snowbirds see those and kind of go, hmm. But uh, you don't have to worry about any of that here because it's of equal standing. I mean, in the days of old, we sort of heard about in school, you know, when all these people came to Ellis Island and they went through the process not like today where they just sort of stream across and they went through the process and these people were naturalized, they took their test, they became citizens, yet they have all the same privileges and rights and prerogatives of being a citizen of the United States of America as you or I when we were born here. And this is what Peter is saying about our faith. Did you ever stop and really grasp that? Think about that for a moment. That You know what? Somebody asks you what you believe you might be misunderstood by saying this to them, but you could actually say the same thing Peter believed. The same thing Paul believed. Same gospel. Ours is the very same faith. If you want to know how a person gets saved, it hasn't changed. It's by grace through faith. So that's an important point. And all of this is done in accordance with God's righteousness. We won't take time to talk about that phrase because we're about out of time. We have three or four minutes, but... We'll catch this last point with what time we have to talk about it. Third statement, our faith is based on the Word of God. As I said earlier in the introduction, how to know God is sort of a timeless question. You look at it intellectually, you look at it philosophically, you talk about it in the spiritual vein, which is what we're doing. Peter provides two answers. First of all, by knowing Jesus Christ. What's that all about? Look at verse 3, or verse 2. May God... May, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, now note the word knowledge, in the knowledge of whom? Of God and of Jesus our Lord. In verse 3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How's that? Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His glory and virtue or excellence. He uses an intensive word here when he's talking about these things, full knowledge, intimate knowledge. You know God through having a full and intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it's the only way you know God. It's the only way you come to know God, is through Jesus Christ. And it's a personal relationship with Him. And this is told us not only here, but it's told us in these other scriptures, 
Look at this quickly. At that time, Jesus declared, this is Jesus' words, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them unto little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So if you are interested in how you get to the Father, it's through the Son. And how does that happen? Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let's look some more. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. How do you know God? You know God through a full and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Take those three terms and think about them, and you can come up with some, a lot of thoughts, but Jesus is the way that leads us to God and the only way. He's the truth that reveals God, and he is the life that comes from God. A lot of preaching could be done here, and we don't have time. Second, it is by the word of God, because now here we are second-generation Christians, and we haven't met Jesus Christ in the flesh. But how is Jesus Christ revealed then? If it's through Jesus, how is Jesus revealed to us today when we weren't like Peter to walk with him and be with him and all this? Well, we have the word of God. We're not... We're not second-class Christians because that's what we have. If anything, it almost puts us in a stronger, think about it this way, almost puts us in a stronger position because Peter didn't have the New Testament. Paul wrote a good portion of it but didn't have it all. It wasn't completed until nearly the end of the first century with John putting the final touches on things. It is by the Word of God which reveals Christ's person. He says this in verse 3, who hath called us to his own Glory, the full knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Um, and those precious promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature. He's not talking about being, becoming gods, little gods. He's talking about the new birth. As we see from Ephesians 4.22, among other places, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. That's what he says here, through deceitful lust. Same thing Peter is saying, escape the corruptions in the worldly lust. I'm going to stop, except for just a, one comment or two by way of conclusion, and maybe I'll say something a little more on this, because I know we rushed, especially on verses 3 and 4 here, when we get into the next su subject of growing. So you have to have it, right? This is the whole point. It starts here. Because you can't grow and be grounded in something you don't first have. And it's important for us, even in a good, strong church like this, where the gospel has been preached year after year after year, nevertheless, to keep preaching the gospel to be certain that all of the people who come, visitors, young people growing up in the church, and the like, all have a good, clear understanding of the gospel and what it is to come to God through Jesus Christ. God's part is to grant, our part is to believe. Here's a precious promise for you. We're going to stop here. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How's that, how's that for you? That's a promise. 
And he summarizes, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's be sure we've started there. Let's be sure we know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Then we'll talk about growing. Then we'll talk about resisting attacks. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the group of interested listeners here this morning. Bless each one and bless as we go into the next service in Christ's holy name. Amen.